Welcome to Teacher Quit Talk. I'm Miss Redacted. And I'm Mrs. Frazzled. Every week we explore the teacher exodus to find out what, if anything, could get these educators back in the classroom. We've all had our moments where we thought, what the hell am I doing here? From burnout to bureaucracy to soul-sucking stressors and creative dead ends. From recognizing when it was time to go to navigating feelings of guilt and regret afterwards, we're here to cut out the gaslighting and get real about what it means to leave teaching. We've got insights from former teachers from all over the country who have seen it all. So get ready to be disturbed. Join us on Teacher Quit talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay? Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Дамы и господа, добро пожаловать в Prevail. Это второй сезон нашей борьбы с криминальными сволочами. Ваш ведущий Грег Олиан. I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. What a show we have for you today. From the great state of Rhode Island, my favorite senator, Sheldon Whitehouse, is here today. Yeah, he spent almost an hour with me, which I'm super grateful for. And man, we really cover a lot of ground. He says so many good things that I don't even know what I'm going to write about for Friday. I can't decide what to isolate because there's too much there that we talk about. Um, Some of the subjects we cover, dark money, anonymous donors, regulatory capture, which is not something that I knew anything about, the Federalist Society, Leonard Leo, the motives of Mitch McConnell, Amike Curie, Citizens United, and specifically what Citizens United did to climate change legislation and the appetite of Republicans, especially in Congress, to to go in with Democrats uh, on on bills fighting uh, for climate change and to preserve the earth. We talk about John McCain and and what a great loss John McCain was in the Trump years. We talk about expanding the court. I ask him point blank, hey, is there a plan to expand the court? Obviously, we talk about Brett Kavanaugh, because how can we not? And we talk about the FBI investigation into Brett Kavanaugh and where that might be headed. So, like I said, we cover a lot of ground. It's a really interesting interview. I'm so I'm so happy to to bring this to you. I'm so grateful to the senator for taking the time with me. We'll be right back with Senator Whitehouse. Preview. My name is Semyon Mogilevich, and I'm here to tell you about the exciting new opportunity of cryptocurrency, Vorcoin. Vorcoin also is developed by Satoshi Nakamoto from his top secret office in dungeon beneath my house. Unlike Bitcoin, Vorcoin is pinned to a value of something tangible. How much is worth pack of cigarettes at Black Dolphin Prison in Orenburg Oblast? And with Vorcoin, American FBI no can trace your blockchain. 
Why give fees over to IRS or services like PayPal or Square? With Borkcoin, you trade me, Semyon Mogilevich, hard cash for crypto. What can be easier? Invest your life savings in Borkcoin today. That's V-O-R-C-O-I-N dot R-U. Eliminate the middleman so we don't have to. Borkcoin. And now, back to the show. Senator Whitehouse, welcome to the Prevail Podcast. Thank you. Great to be with you, Greg. I appreciate it. So first, on, on behalf of myself, uh, people that I work with, really of, of everybody listening to this podcast, with a possible exception of whatever Federalist Society intern is transcribing it for Leonard Leo to read later, <laughs> I want to thank you for your service to the country and to the forces of good in general. Uh, you took on the Rhode Island mob when you were U.S. attorney and you're fighting dark money and corruption in the courts as a senator. And so you're you're basically our patron saint. And I'm just really grateful for the work you're doing. And I want you to know that we're all, you know, me, everybody listening to this, we're eager to help you. Good. That's the first thing. So let's start by talking about dark money. You know, dark money in this sense means political donations made through PACs, super PACs, other means where donors are not disclosed. So first of Correct. all, simple question. Why is this bad? Why should people care about this? Because the founders set up democracy that was going to be governed by the people. And that confers on the people responsibilities of citizenship. And one of the responsibilities of citizenship is to be informed about what's going on around you, particularly in your politics. And one very obvious piece of information that citizens need in order to do that job is who the speaker really is. In real life, it is incredibly important to know who the speaker really is. So you can look for bias, for motive, for credibility, for all of the attributes by which we judge people's content. Um, and also, once you know who the speaker is, you know who to blame if what they're spouting is poisonous slime. And for both of those reasons, big special interests have wanted to hide who they are it, once the public knows it's Marathon Petroleum, they've got no credibility on climate, their message evaporates. Um, and once they know it's Marathon Petroleum, then when they've slimed somebody, Marathon Petroleum gets the blame for the sliming. So what they want to do is intermediate between Marathon Petroleum and you, a fake front group with the name like Americans for Peace and Puppies and Prosperity. <laughs> and that front group emits the slime and the lies and the citizen has denied the ability to know, like, who's in what jersey. It's interesting you bring that up, who the speaker really is, because I think that's something that happens in the media a lot, too. You have people writing op-eds. You have people that go on CNN and say stuff. And sometimes they're being paid by God knows who, sometimes a foreign power, and we don't know. Um, so Editorial page editors, in my experience, have sucked <laughs> yes. at sorting out who is behind a front group mouthpiece and describing where the money for the front group really comes from and what the nominal writers' real associations are. They put up with a lot of that stuff. But it's worse when it's money being spent in politics than when it's just an op-ed. I mean, the founding fathers all wrote under Publius and these other names. That's not a big deal. It's a really big deal when you're putting $15 million into a pack to beat the crap out of some member of Congress. 
Well, and also, you know, where is the money coming from? I think, you know, what you said, who the speakers really are, if the donors don't ever have to be disclosed, we don't know they're not, We, we it, it could be the Koch brothers, I mean, which we use yeah. as it, all those- Likely jerseys. is, just it, by the way. <laughs> it, right. It, it could be hostile foreign powers. I mean, how do we know- Could well be. The Federalist Society no. isn't, you know, funded by a hostile foreign power. We don't know. I don't know. Do you know? We don't know. Yeah. One of the really, really uh, sad and sickening things about all this- is that the Republicans defending these dark money channels for the sake of their domestic influence uh, operations? In order to protect their domestic influence operations, they left us completely exposed to foreign influence operations. If the Koch brothers and Marathon Petroleum can hide who they are from the American public and broadcast their nonsense into our public American debate, so can Vladimir Putin. Absolutely. And and does uh, you know, all, all the time. They've um, kind of been caught, actually. Remember Facebook taking those payments for political ads in rubles? My yeah. friend Al Franken pointed that out so, so <laughs> wonderfully to Brother Zuckerberg. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, the, the money comes in. I mean, Lev Parnas is convicted. We know for, you know, Alexander Torshin was there trying to infiltrate yeah. the NRA and, and yeah. the, the prayer breakfast or whatever this, this stuff happens all the time and 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 it's dangerous so okay here here's a question that nobody has real i've asked this a bunch of people and nobody's really been able to explain it to me speaking of republicans and Koch brothers okay you see this on twitter sometimes oh you know mitch mcconnell's owned by the cokes the cokes own mansion and cinema and 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 so on and so on but that it can't really be true because you know they it's not like they can give money directly to mitch mcconnell so he can buy a vacation house or send his kids to college right so I, 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 I puzzle, I'm struggling to figure out like how it works exactly. Like when they say that, is there truth to it? I, I, I'm hard, it's hard to formulate this question, but how does the money come from a dark money group you know, to somebody like Mitch McConnell, for example, in a way that he can actually use other than just for his campaign stuff, if that makes sense? You, you remember a couple of years ago, we had Evan Bayh was gonna come back and run for his Senate seat in Indiana. Mm-hmm. Russ Feingold was going to come back and run for his Senate seat in Wisconsin. And former Governor Strickland was going to run for the Senate seat in um, Ohio. And in our Democratic caucus lunches, there was great joy in Mudville that, you know, we had these great candidates. They were polling 10 points ahead. They were going to win. We were in this really strong position. Chuck Schumer was going to be Senate majority leader. And before the, the year before that election, I, th- I want to say in May, dark money bombardment started to fall on those three candidates. And by the time the dust settled as we closed in on the election, I think $70 million had been spent against the three of them. And it had started way earlier than normal. It was anonymous, which at that point wasn't normal. And I believe that when we got back from the August recess before that November election, we had written off all three of those candidates and the Democratic Senate campaign committee had moved its support to other candidates because they were a lost cause. So let's just say you're Mitch McConnell and you've got a big special interest group like the Koch brothers and you say, you got to get rid of these three candidates for me. They're winning, they're 10 points ahead and I'm not majority leader if they win. And for what is a chump change number to the fossil fuel industry, 
They use their phony front groups. They drop $70 million into these races. They crush these three candidates and Mitch is now majority leader. So Mitch knows that he's majority leader because whoever's behind those checks did that. Right. And if that's not going to buy Mitch McConnell's loyalty, nothing is. Well, sure. That he that he's gonna he's gonna dance to the uh, the tune, you know, the uh, the fiddler calling the yeah. tune or whatever. But there's yeah. no there's the no way is, that the, the money goes directly to him, though, right? No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. Okay, no. that's what I thought. He's so, got plenty of money. He doesn't need money. What he needs is power. Yeah, yeah. And power is what he gets by being able to deploy unlimited anonymous money through these groups. Um, the idea that these are independent expenditures is well known to be laughable. Yeah, yeah. Frankly, they don't actually have to be independent of Mitch. They just have to be independent of Evan Bayh's opponent. They just have to be independent of Russ Feingold's opponent. They just have to be independent of Strickland's opponent. So um, working with Mitch's minions is um, not even part of what the independent definition is. So it, it just becomes part of the artillery barrage and part of the slimification of our politics. What can we do about this? Now, you 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 proposed this, disclose. the Disclose Act, right? It, and it yeah. keeps getting so. T- tell us a little bit about that. What is it, and and you know how can we get it to pass? It would say if you give more than ten thousand bucks into a race, you got to disclose who you are. If you give more than ten thousand bucks to a super PAC, you got to disclose who you are. Now somebody will call you up later and say. Super PACs have to disclose who gave them money. Sheldon Whitehouse wasn't telling you the truth. <laughs> but all they have to do is disclose the first hop. This is the same Facebook problem. You disclose the first hop, but the first hop is a shell company, or it's a front group that itself doesn't have to disclose its donors, or it's donors trust that puts its name in place of the true donor. So you actually don't know who the real donor is for Super PAC. So that's the vehicle, and our bill would... You know, you've got those Russian dolls behind you on your bookshelf. I can see the nesting dolls. Our bill would drill through every single doll until you actually hit the true human donor. And um, you need that kind of persistence and, and ability to drill through because you do, in fact, see a 501c4 that hides its donors, that contributes to a shell corporation that gives the money to donors trust and then it lands you know some of these big donors want to double and triple protect themselves so that's what the bill would do it would out ten thousand dollar plus donors i think that's perfectly reasonable and i think that's something the americans totally reasonable and every single democrat votes for it and every single republican opposes it and then they turn around and accuse us of being in favor of dark money that they just voted to protect against us it's similar. You were just describing the structure of it. I, I forget where I was reading this. It might have been one of the papers your office put out. It might have been an Evil Geniuses by Kurt Anderson, which has a good um, wrap up of this. How some of these organizations, these Leonard Leo groups that we'll talk about in a minute, yep. they'll you know they're bound by law. I think that they can only spend fifty percent on political stuff, yep. and that, that, but then they take the other fifty percent and donate it to Group B, which can only yep. spend fifty percent. So they'll. They, they just keep donating to these groups that give 50%. Yeah. So it's this asymptotic thing yeah. where essentially all yeah. of the money winds up going to political uh, to political groups. So it's all a, it's all a joke, right? Exactly. It's a, it's a little daisy chain of money going through the groups that are all doing the same thing. 
and coordinating with each other while they're doing it. The whole thing is um, masquerade and we're the suckers who have to, who are denied the look behind the masquerade. Yeah. Um, okay, I, w- I want to talk about the courts now a little bit because I love the the work that you're doing with the courts and trying to expose this because I think it's, it's just super important for a, a million reasons. You had a piece in Salon recently which was, uh, I think you wrote it as a rebuttal to statements that Justice Alito made at Notre Dame. Remember when he, when he and some of the other yeah. justices ha- went on there? Oh, no, we're not we're not partisan at all tour, which was just ridiculous. nothing going on here, folks. Move yep. along, move along. <laughs> nothing to see here. Please disperse. Nothing to see so, here. <laughs> so, you know, at, what the piece was great. It's, it's a succinct summary of what happened, which is basically Lewis Powell writes a memo 50 years ago, a bunch of these ridiculously rich libertarians throw in a whole bunch of an obscene amount of money. And the next thing you know, the entire judicial branch is, is has been taken over by these forces. And we now have six of the nine justices on the Supreme Court are allied with Leonard Leo and the Federalist Society, Thomas Alito and Roberts, and now uh, Gorsuch, Barrett, and my my buddy, uh, Brett Kavanaugh. So can can you just summarize a little bit how that happened, just for listeners who might not be aware of this this sort of covert takeover? Yeah, the um, first of all, big industries knew, learned about regulatory capture years ago, and it's a widely, widely, widely known and studied phenomenon. There are administrative law texts about it. There's, you know, it's a whole, it's a field of uh, economics. And if you're a big industry and you've gotten in the habit of taking over, capturing so-called regulatory agencies so they do what you want instead of what the public wants. And then one day you look over at the Supreme Court and say, hey, why don't we do that to that court? And Powell gave them a game plan years ago, and they've steadily been building on this. And bad went to worse when Trump came in and said, I'm going to take all of my Supreme Court nominees from the Federalist Society. First, there's not a country in the world that hands off its judicial nomination process to a private organization. Trump did. And at the same time, the private organization was taking, guess what? Huge anonymous donations. So (laughs) the vector for corruption was complete. And sure enough, the donors behind the operations controlled the turnstile and they started feeding pre-approved judges through the turnstile, which is exactly how you would capture a regulatory agency. You control who gets appointed to the uh, board of the agency. So they started doing that. And then they had the Judicial Crisis Network, which is conveniently next door (laughs) to the Federalist Society on the same hallway of the same building in Washington, DC, which took also huge anonymous donations to run the ads against Garland and then for Gorsuch for Kavanaugh and for Barrett, people were writing checks as big as $17 million. And if the same person wrote those checks, it could have been 50 or $60 million paid to influence the makeup of the Supreme Court. And we don't know who it is, so we don't know what business they have before the court, which is a creepy state of affairs. So that's the second vector for dark money. And then the third is this whole armada of phony front groups who turn up as what they call emiki curiae, friends of the court, who are allowed to come in and file a brief, even if they're not a party. And the right-wing donors send them in in little flotillas of a dozen or so into cases that matter to them, unless it's like berserker matters to them, like the recent AFPF dark money case, there they they send in a flotilla of 50. (laughs) So 
pretty much blaring signal to the judges on the Supreme Court who actually know these organizations. Folks, this is something we're super, super serious about. Make sure you're paying attention. Um, and that, th th those are the three main vectors by which dark money controls the court. I could go into more detail as to the more specific schemery of it, but that's the overview. I want to get back to the, the uh, God, I can't, the amicus stuff, because you, you wrote a piece about that, too, this week. You've, yep. been, you've been busy writing this week, I think. That, that, that's yeah. what's been happening. Um, so, okay. Once somebody's nominated to the Supreme Court, all they really have to do is get like 51 votes in the Senate, which seems right. like, you know, so why does there need to be ads at all? I mean, why, who, who are the ads for? Why is Brett Kavanaugh's face and Amy Barrett's face on the side of a bus? Like, I don't. What, what, the ads are for um, Republicans who might waffle. It's almost always in swing states. And in the hopes of sparking fear in the hearts of uh, swing state Democrats. Okay. But at the end of the day, it may not be the most efficient use of their money because there's a 90 plus percent certainty that the same donors who funded the Federalist Society turnstile that chose the judges are the same donors who funded the Judicial Crisis Network ad campaigns are the same donors who are behind these amici curiae that signal to the judges, here's what we want you to say, here's what we want you to do. And they're also the same donors who are behind Mitch McConnell. They're the same ones who did the buy Feingold and Strickland demolition campaigns. And so if you're the prime donor of dark money to the Republican Senate political apparatus, you're probably gonna get <laughs> all, the, all the Republicans to vote with you. Um, and all of this would be just like disgusting for the public to see if it were exposed. So that's why they try to keep it hidden. How many, how many people do you think really this is? I mean, we, we say the Koch brothers almost as a metonym for like a bunch of different yeah. groups, but yeah. is it really more than a handful of people? Do you think, I mean, I, I have no idea. Nope. nope. I think that's about it. It's like the I Bradleys think, you know, and the Olins and the Cokes and Scaifes, Mercers, yeah. that's kind of the, that's the crew. Some of them are the big trusts. Some of them are their political operations run by the billionaire families. But you could uh, easily put them in a room and um, it wouldn't have to be that big of a room. They would fit at my dining room table, is what you're saying. They would fit at your dining room table, I believe. Yeah, it's not a very big dining room table, but I think maybe they would fit. Maybe not comfortably. They'd have to, they'd have to scrunch around a little bit, but I think that they'd be okay. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Sheldon Whitehouse. This episode of Prevail is brought to you by Tales.com. That's tales as in stories and not as in jacket and tie. Tales.com is the easiest way to record your family memories. If you're anything like me, the thoughts probably crossed your mind that you should have your mom or dad, or both, write down their life stories. But here's the problem. Most people have no clue where to start, and we never get around to doing it. That's why we're partnering with Tales.com, to give families like yours a super easy way to capture your family's most important memories. Here's how it works. This is the really cool part. Tales has professional interviewers who interview your loved one over the phone, over Zoom, just like we do here in the podcast, over Zoom, and record their stories. Then Tales delivers a professionally produced podcast episode hosted on a private webpage that your family will cherish forever. 
Now we're heading into the holiday season. Mom and dad, it's always impossible to find something for them, right? This is the perfect, unique, meaningful gift for a loved one that instantly becomes family heirloom. Get started right away. No shipping necessary at Tails.com. And for listeners of Prevail, that's you, Tails is offering $20 off your first purchase. Just enter promo code PREVAIL at checkout at Tails.com. That's T-A-L-E-S.com with promo code PREVAIL for $20 off your first purchase. Check it out today. Tails.com. And now, back to the show. Okay, we're back with Sheldon Whitehouse. Okay, let's get now. Now you've mentioned it twice, so I want to. You published a paper uh, in the Yale Law Journal about the dark money forces flooding the court with amicus briefs. This is done at the cert stage. It's called the cert stage, which in some uh, cases they even start then. That big case that I mentioned where they yeah. dropped in fifty, that was a cert stage armada of fifty phony front groups. And you write in the piece that the cert stage is, and I'm not a lawyer, I don't know about this stuff. That's important because that's sort of a signal to the Supreme Court that, hey, this is a case we should take up instead of not taking it up. So that's the point where the Supreme Court decides whether or not they're going to take the case. And then later on, the decision stage is where they decide the case. Right, right. So there's two different points where they have to make a decision effectively. The first is in cert, which most people have no, pay no attention to and don't know anything about, which is where these dark money groups I think are so efficient and effective is finding these pressure points that most people have no idea even exist and exploiting them. So Yeah, and weirdly, this decision was made on January 8th in public on January 8th. So the entire world was looking at the aftermath of the January 6th riot and effort to undo the election at the Capitol. And this case, which had been sitting for quite mm-hmm. some time. They sometimes kick over the case rather than decide it. They wait until January 8th in the immediate uproar when nobody would be noticing this. And after Amy Coney Barrett gave them six, so they knew that they didn't have to worry about holding the five, the Roberts five together. Oh, God. In so the, the timing the has a bit of an odor to it as well. Yeah, that, that was a Friday too, right? So it was like, you know, for everyone's going away for the weekend. Yeah, exactly. They know what Nothing they're doing. Nothing to see here, folks. <laughs> um, so in in that in that uh, piece that you wrote, it's Americans for Prosperity Foundation, which is Coke stuff versus Bonta. So it, can you explain how exactly the Coke subverted that case? Because I think it was kind of interesting and it's telling and it's sort of illustrative of how this works, right? Yeah. If you want to file for favored tax status with the IRS, um, you file what's called a 501C. And there are two kinds of 501Cs that are particularly important in the political world. There's a 501C4, which is the one that's allowed to spend that 50% and then play shuffle with the other 50% so that all the money gets spent with the little crew of 501C4s. And then the current state of the art is that each 501c4 has a parallel 501c3 that does almost all of the work except the exact political spending. And then they added bonus, the funding for the 501c3 is tax deductible. So you get these 501c3, 501c4 combos. This was the Americans for Prosperity Foundation, which is the 501c3 that is the twin to the Koch brothers, Americans for Prosperity which is their lead political hit group. And everybody on the court knows that, at least the six of them who came through the dark money turnstile 
for damn sure know that. Yeah. And as a 501c3, just to make sure that you're for real, you got to disclose who your donors are so that the IRS can realize that this is actually a real charity and not just a, a scam. And, I, and uh, California had the same rule. If you want to be a 501c3, you got to tell us what you're telling the IRS. Keep it secret. It's not public information, but you got to tell us. And Americans for Prosperity Foundation objected to that and rounded up this armada of 50 other phony front groups to all chime in. Not that anybody gives a real red hot damn about Americans for Prosperity Foundation and its stupid disclosures to California. That was just a hook. Yes. The hook was for the Supreme Court with its new six to three majority to start talking about dark money and giving it a constitutional home. And sure enough, they did. They said there's a constitutional right to dark money. And they said it about a group that was the twin to an active political group. So they've gone a long way to making a constitutional home for dark money in American politics. And it's unprecedented, it's disgraceful, it's astounding. And unfortunately, Democrats barely noticed. What now, what what can we do about that? Like that and Citizens United, do we, can we, are there yeah. new laws we write? Do we have to have a, a constitutional amendment? How do we, how do we legally, what do we do to fight that? Well, like here's the dirty trick. Citizens United actually said there has to be transparency in all this pol political spending. In fact, we presume that there is going to be transparency in all this political spending. There's a logical trick that they had to go through that gate in order to allow unlimited money. So they had to go through that gate to allow unlimited money. Then came all the cases afterwards that said, hey, Supreme Court, look out there. There's boatloads of anonymous money being spent. There's like, we just crossed a billion dollars in dark money being spent. You want to go back and tell us again about this transparency thing? And the Supreme Court repeatedly refused to take those cases and deliberately let the dark unlimited money continue to flow, despite what they'd said about transparency. And then comes this case where they completely turn Citizens United on its head and say, not only is there not a requirement for transparency in political funding, but there's actually a constitutional right to hide who you are when you're a 501c3 that is the twin for a political front group. Just gets nastier. You mentioned yeah, it's nasty. Yeah, there's zero possible logical alignment between the Citizens United transparency predicate and where the court went. The only through line on all of this is what their big donor interests wanted them to be doing. Yeah, which is just flat out corruption. Um, you talk about well, flat out capture anyway. Corruption implies they're putting it in their own pockets, but yeah, capture for sure. The you know, you you mentioned precedent, and I feel like there's there's a situation that's going now where, with some of these briefs and some of these other things, they're taking the, the Supreme Court is is basically upending precedent. I mean, they clearly right now have their sights on Roe v. Wade, which is what we were all afraid yeah. of from the minute Trump took office. But I think it's even worse than that. I think that um, they're laying the groundwork for a descent into 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 autocracy. I feel like the Roe v. Wade piece is the first step in something even more sinister. And, and by eroding the judicial precedent and, and sort of perverting it as they're doing, it's making it easier for the next Trump to be kind of like a more of a full-fledged tyrant. Am I completely off base? Am I crazy? Can you talk me off the ledge a little with that? Or I think um, the concern about where they go 
is a legitimate concern. I think the truly sinister thing that they did was just constitutionalize dark money in politics. I mean, think back to our founding fathers. Think back to those debates in Philadelphia. Somebody stands up in their wig and their white stockings and their, you know, buckle breeches and says, you know what? There's going to be a thing called a corporation. This is not people. This is a different thing. This is the thing that lawyers set up so that people can do business. And that thing, the corporation, we need to have it have a big role in politics. And by the way, be able to spend huge amounts of money in politics. And by the way, when they're spending that huge amount of money in politics, we need them to be able to hide their identity. That person would have been thrown out the window of the building. But the Supreme Court has crept around. The Republican judges, I want to be clear about this, it has been the Republican judges on the Supreme Court that have gradually built the role for corporations in our politics, the role for corporate unlimited money in our politics, and in this last iteration, the ability for corporations to hide behind anonymity in political twin front groups. And all of it is wrong. All of it is wrong. Yeah. All of it is inconsistent with the founding fathers. And we're like the frogs in the water who've gotten used to, oh, yeah, of course, corporations should have a big role in our politics. No, no. It, it's really mind blowing. And, and talking to you and thinking about how few people there are that are that are really driving the engine of this and how much money there is. How much money do you think there is, by the way, in all of the in all of this, how much dark money is in the system, would you say? Well, the Washington Post did an expose on the uh, money available to the court capture apparatus that Leonard Leo operates. They came up with $250 million spent. Um, a witness in a hearing of ours upped the number with further investigation to $400 million spent to capture the court. The uh, number on climate denial easily runs into the billions. And I think we did $14 billion in total spending in the last election. And I think uh, uh, maybe a third of it was dark money. Many races, the majority of the money that's spent is dark money. So it's billions and billions of dollars right now. And guess what? People don't spend billions and billions of dollars for no return. Yeah. Yeah, you don't spend that unless you want something back. No, sure. no. Yeah, and, and what, you know, that's the thing, what? Well, obviously they don't want anything to do with climate change, you know, any Correct. laws about climate change because that, that affects the fossil fuel industry. They want power, they want, it, it, it appears from what I, from where I sit that it's it's this, you know, um, holding on to, 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 you know, the patriarchy uh, in a big way uh, and, and the, the white patriarchy, I should say, so that, that's what it looks like, all of these things that they're kind of hitting. I don't know if that's the case. Well, on, the, on the climate thing, my, here's my experience. I came to the Senate in January of 07. <laughs> Dick Cheney swore me in. And I went to work on climate stuff. And it was going pretty well. There were maybe four different bills in the Senate, every single one of them bipartisan. Every single one of them would, be, would make a big difference. You know, do you do cap and trade? Do you do cap and dividend? What do you... How do you organize it? But the conversation was a good one. And John McCain ran for president, uh, carrying his party's banner with a really good climate platform. And all of that was the state of the discussion until January of 2010. 
And from January of 2010 on, all of those conversations stopped dead. No Republican would get onto a serious climate bill. And every candidate had to get into climate denial instead of have a climate platform. And coincidentally, that date, January of 2010, is exactly the date that Citizens United was decided mm. and that the fossil fuel industry got unlimited money to spend. And it knew from day one how to spend it anonymously. And they made it very clear to Mitch McConnell and to the House leadership, everybody lines up with us and you get boatloads of money, any strays get killed and we're gonna run them out of the party. And that's been the, that's been the experience. We lost a decade on climate change, on getting a law passed precisely because of fossil fuel dark money being unleashed by the five Republicans on the court, who by the way also took you know just one bright day through the shadow docket, knocked the clean power plan out before it could even go into effect. So the fossil fuel industry has had a real payday with the Republican justices on the court. I mean, don't they? Yeah, I, I've always sitting where I sit, I, I watch the senators all in the same chambers. I mean, it must be so frustrating for you to be sitting in a room with these people because they know they must. Mitch McConnell is a smart guy. He knows that that the result of his of his things that he's doing is that the earth is going to be destroyed. Like he must know that he's not dumb. How, how do these, how do they live with themselves? I mean, really, it's really frustrating. You know, it can seem like they're like rubber people and there's a little round hole behind their desk and the wriggly tentacle of the fossil fuel industry is in the little rubber person and wiggling and waving, but there's no, there's nobody there there because they control the, they're so dependent on the fossil fuel money. They're kind of like deep sea divers who, you know, the fossil fuel industry controls the oxygen spout down to their, uh, down to their helmet. And if the fossil fuel industry cuts off, the, cuts off the oxygen, they surface real quickly saying, what do I need to do to get you pumping oxygen into me again? That's a, that's a great analogy. I, I don't, I wonder, I, I, and I get that they, take the money. You know, I get that they need the money, but I, it, it just like, even, okay. When Trump was, was at the beginning of the 2017, 2018, when it became clear that he was bad. Okay. And acting in, in not in the interest of, of the United States in any positive way, there was moments when the Republicans, especially in the Senate could have done something to knock him down. And they, yeah, somebody like a Ben Sass, if he, you know, a quote unquote sensible uh, moderate Republican or or Romney, even if they bound together and came out against him, I feel like they could have changed the, the, the tide a little bit. And maybe if they lost money from fossil fuel, they would gain money from just regular people liking them. Or does that just not matter? I don't know. Regular people can't drop money in 10, 15, 20 million dollar increments. Yeah. And so if you're the majority leader, or the minority leader in the Senate, having your people raise more money by virtue of being popular is fine, but it's nothing compared to having the ability to deploy multi tens of millions of dollars in barrages that by the way, you're the point of contact with. So all of your membership has to come to you. So now you've cemented your control in your caucus and you've got this weapon to uh, hang on to power with by dropping these huge anonymous barrages of slimy negative advertising. So it's kind of a, 
you know, it's not a fair comparison. But I do think that a lot of this has to do with us having lost John McCain. Yeah. I was a pallbearer at his funeral. I miss him dearly. Um, we traveled a lot together and I was a great admirer of his. We didn't, obviously we didn't agree on a lot of stuff, but the man had courage. And I think if we'd had, if he had not been ill and if we had his spark and determination of a healthy John McCain, um, then it, things could have turned out differently. And as you know, people like Jeff Flake tried to stand up and got run out of the Senate for, for doing so. Um, the, price, the price was pretty high. Yeah. And, you know, once you've hung a few careers on the lamppost, everybody else yeah. Yeah. lines up. Yeah, no, I get it. I get it. Um, okay, Mitch McConnell spoke this week about the commission, you know, to tweak the Supreme Court. And he said, and I, I'm sorry to make you hear this a second time, just for people listening. He said, uh, from the brazen amicus brief from a group of our Senate colleagues warning the court to heal itself, lest it be restructured to the pseudo academic commission the president created to consider reanimating the ugly cadaver of court packing that his party last tried 80 years ago. These are nonsense responses to a non-existent problem. So, I mean, Mitch is so good at this faux outrage. Is there ever a point yeah. where you're just, you're almost, it's like yeah. James Bond being like, you know, G Goldfinger, your plan is actually brilliant. It's, it, but. Um, so rule one, if you've got a captured agency, rule one is to make sure nobody thinks it's captured. Because mm. once people are onto the fact that the agency's captured, that kind of diminishes the return that you can get out of it. So. Yeah. If you've captured the court, obviously you want to rise to the defense. And second thing is, um, as a matter of rhetoric, the Republicans have gotten very good at accusing Democrats of what Republicans are actually doing. Yeah. Even if we're not doing it, they accuse us of doing it. It's like preventive um, maintenance so that when we finally get around to waking up to what they're doing and accuse them of doing it, They've spent a year or two accusing us of the same thing, and now it's offsetting penalties and the public doesn't pay attention. So this was kind of a twofer by Mitch, first pretending that the court isn't captured by him, then accusing us of trying to intimidate the court. And in point of fact, he actually misquoted my, my brief mm -hmm. um, because I wasn't saying that. I was quoting a poll. The poll said that Americans are sick of the way the court is behaving and X percent if the court doesn't clean up its act would be in favor of restructuring the court. So I quoted to the court what this poll said, and he's recast that as me trying to threaten the court. So, you know, all of this is just part of the part of the masquerade, part of the show. That that thing that you said where they project their own sins upon you, that's that's straight up yeah. KGB stuff, by the way. I mean, Trump oh, is a great. master. I mean, they do it all the time. You can almost sometimes tell what they're going to do next. By what they start accusing you of doing. It's like, oh, <laughs> they, they're accusing us of doing this. We never even thought of that, but let's start looking around to see where they're doing it because they yep. wouldn't be accusing us if they didn't have a plan. So is there any is there a plan to expand the court? And if not, why not? Because Mitch doesn't want it, so we should do it. Um, there is not a plan to expand the court. And part of the reason, I think, is because despite your wonderful podcast here, and despite what a lot of progressives see and believe and observe, we have simply not really taken this case effectively yet to the American public. Yeah. 
we have not made a point of showing average voters what's going on with the Federalist Society, where their money came from, taking them through the mischief of the Judicial Crisis Network. We haven't done a good job at connecting the dots. And sadly, the Biden so-called Supreme Court Commission was a pathetic splat of an effort where they could have gone after some of this. They could have addressed these real problems, which, I mean, the, the business of the fake amici is real enough that the judicial conference, the administrative organization of the courts has set up a special task force, a special committee to look at how they solve that problem. So that's kind of the last thing that they want to look at because it's in their house, but they realize it's serious. And so they look at it, not even mentioned by the ridiculous faculty lounge commission. So, you know, we've missed all these opportunities where we could be talking about these real things to the American public. And I've been a lawyer long enough that I believe before you ask for extraordinary measures in court, you've got to convince the court that you deserve them. You've got to make your case. So I think we are in the case-making stage of how we solve the problem of the court. And if we jump to individual remedies before we've made the case, Mitch is clever. He'll turn it around. He'll feed it back to us the way he fed Green New Deal back to us because we did a terrible rollout. They grabbed the issue, recast it, and ended up beating us over the head with Green New Deal. It's now Mitch's favorite talking point. Yeah. So that's, yeah. So, so it, it looks like that's what they're going to do. They're going to take the. Uh, and it already is. Pack the court. Yeah. Pack the court. They we're always. Gonna, we're going to protect. We're going to protect you from Democrats who want to pack the court say the people who just packed the court for dark money donors. And pack the court, by the way, one of the, one of the things, one of the reasons why I think this should be is because of it's a diversity issue at the end of the day. I mean, I, I was raised Catholic. I am a confirmed Catholic. There are seven Catholics of the nine people on the Supreme Court, which seems a lot. I don't know. It just seems like it's a lot. But maybe there should be a little more like diversity with, with this. Stuff. I, I want there to be enough justices on the court that I don't have to worry about any of their health. I want to not know everyone's name. You know, I, I think it would be healthier. I want 81 justices. That's what, that's what I'd like. I, that would be good for me. There are and, lots of solutions to this problem, but the first thing that we have to do is lift up the problem and make the case. And that's our responsibility. That's on us. And we have not, as a party, done this effectively. And the president has certainly not weighed in on this in, in any way at all. That's what we'll do then. Everybody listen. We're going to continue to make the case. Mark it up. Make and not just, not just throw stuff at it. So I, I want to have a, a couple more questions. Now, I want to talk about Kavanaugh a little bit because I feel like it's really people that follow my stuff know I've written a lot about this. And yep. um, I know that you, you've you been one of the few people there that seems to understand why it matters. So first question, getting back to the Leonard Leo Federalist Society and them putting him there. Okay. This group, as we've seen, these people, Leonard Leo and his and his minions there, the long-term planning involved is really amazing. So, I mean, they they must do an awful lot of vetting before they determine that a judge is worthy of their endorsement for the Supreme Court. So, is there any reality in which Leo and his FedSoc cronies didn't know about Kavanaugh's high school stuff or his work with Kenneth Starr? or the red flags in his finances, or his issues with alcohol, which even I've heard about 
independently of anything I've read in the press and whatever he was up to in the W White House, which I think you you probably have some questions about yeah. that because you called out uh, Gonzalez in, in 2007. Right. Um, did, did Leo really not know any of this stuff? Did they just let it go? So the strangest thing about Kavanaugh and Leo is that the way that House of Trump made peace with House of Coke, because you remember the Cokes hated Trump at the beginning and Trump was mocking them, mm -hmm. was when Trump announced that he would let Leonard Leo and the Federalist Society crowd pick all his Supreme Court judges. That pacified House of Coke because they had Leo as their guy. So along comes Kavanaugh. He's not on the list. Right. So you'd think people would have screamed, wait a minute, we had a deal. You said you'd pick off the list. You didn't pick this guy. They didn't pick this guy because Kavanaugh knew Leo. They'd known each other since the Bush White House. Leo hand-walked Brett Kavanaugh around the list and to the very top of the pile and to be the president's nominee. It could not have been more of an escort. And so, yeah, they, they knew a lot about Kavanaugh, but what they know, most knew about him was that he would be reliable for their donors. I don't think, I don't know that they knew about high school drinking. I'm sure they didn't know about Blasey Ford. I don't know what they thought about his finances, but that didn't matter because he had auditioned super, super hard. And they knew that he was, they were never going to have to face a John Paul Stevens again, a Republican yeah. appointee who would like make decent decisions. This guy was going to be on the team and went to the top of the list. And that's why he got there. And at the end of the day, it really didn't matter what he'd done because they faked an FBI investigation to get him on the, on the court. That's playing pretty rough. Nobody's ever done that before. That was that fake was line, mm -hmm. uh, fake interviews, um, not following the FBI rules. When you're playing, that's a sign that you're playing for keeps. Now, that's so I've got to start getting over to a vote. I don't know how much time we have left, but they're starting to send annoyed signals that I'm not there voting. Okay, D quick quick question then, just following up on that. Brett Kavanaugh, the tip line. What's the what's the status on that? Because you you were kind of calling Ray to account. Yeah, he stalled us until Merrick Garland became attorney general. And somebody in the Department of Justice said, look, enough of the stall job. You've got to start answering these questions. So we got a little smidgen of information, which as a smidgen confirmed my suspicions. In fact, this was a fake tip line. Instead of going into the FBI tip line apparatus where tips get reviewed, it got sent into the dumpster chute and went straight over to White House counsel, where they had exactly zero interest in following up on any of the tips. So we at least found out that much. We're continuing to dig for more, but obviously the FBI is not that excited about having us look into that. And unless the DOJ is on their case pretty constantly, it's slow walk, slow walk, slow walk. So we're still pressing. Um, well, I guess I should say thank you to Attorney General Garland because without him, we'd be back where we were before getting no answers at all. Well, thank you for keep for keeping the pressure on this, because I think this is really super. It matters. Important. Yeah, no, it matters. it matters. The guy is he's got a, He's got there, there's reasons that are not having to do with politics that he shouldn't be there, in my opinion. So there's reasons we should understand that the FBI might take a dive on an executive branch nominee 
and take derogatory information about that nominee and not find it or hide it from the Senate. That's not how this is supposed to work. And if it can happen once with a Brett Kavanaugh, it can happen again. We've got to clean that up. Absolutely. Um, I know you've got to go. Right. Thank the you hook so is much. now officially in. I got to go. Thank you, go. you very much, Greg. Take care. Thanks for joining me, Senator Whitehouse. Thanks so much. The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fassa. Sophia Tarashenko provided the Russian introduction. Voice talent is provided by Tally Briggs, Signet Della, Stephanie St. John, Brett Petticord, Ryan Byrne at History Falls Apart, and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hawkey, Kenai Williams, and everyone else at MSW Media. Please subscribe to the Prevail website with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $5 monthly subscription funds the site and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Don't forget to tip your server. Until next time, we shall prevail. I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of The Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay. Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Give.